0: That's C-O-N-C-U-R The
1: 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening.
0: The kakadu plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin
1: C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a kakadu smoothie. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward, inspired by guaranteed, straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get
0: what you want without the complicated. at Fiber. Live like a gazillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit attcom hypergig for details. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And it is in late August 2020, about a year ago, I recorded an episode about, well, a couple of episodes about Tech TV and G4 TV, a pair of cable television channels that merged in the United States uh, and then suffered uh, a rather sad fate. And I did a full episode on each to kind of explain what happened with both of them. And I wanted to go back and revisit the G4 TV episode. Now, the reason for this is because recent developments have changed things. There's been indication of life after cable death. But I'll explain that when we finish listening to this episode from last year so that we understand where I'm coming from when I talk about the potential reboot of G4 TV. First, let's listen to this classic episode. This is the second episode I'm devoting to a pair of tech-related television channels that made an attempt to court a tech-savvy largely male, audience on cable television. Our last episode was about Tech TV, which I talked about up to when that channel merged with another one. Today, I'm going to focus on that other channel that would end up getting merged with Tech TV before, spoiler alert, both would be ultimately shut down entirely. That tech channel was called G4TV, which was a television channel marketed toward gamers. For a bit longer than a decade, video game enthusiasts had their very own cable channel. Well, sort of, because the channel would change dramatically and would no longer really cater to video game people. And also, G4's reach was hardly universal, but we'll get to all that. The story of G4 really starts with its founder, Charles Hershorn who already had a long career in media before he decided to create a channel specifically for gamers. Hershorn had attended Harvard and graduated in 1979. He probably would have graduated in 1978, but he took a year off after his sophomore year to cook in professional kitchens before deciding that was not quite the life he wanted for himself. He studied filmmaking at Harvard and was able to take advantage of some of the school's departments to get connections with various film studios. And in show business, who you know can be more important than what you know. He worked for a short while in Boston before relocating to California. He enrolled in film school at the University of Southern California, but was only there for a few months before he dropped out. See, one of those connections he had made back at Harvard paid off big time. The connection was promoted to the position of President of Production for Universal Pictures. And then this connection reached out to hire Hershorn as a junior executive. Now, I'm going to spend a couple of seconds just here in the studio, being green with envy as I think about a guy who went from recent college graduate to junior executive in a movie studio in no time flat. Feel free to join me in this moment of vulgar envy. Mm. Okay, now I can move on. And I should add that I don't mean to comment on Hershorn's skill or knowledge. I cannot honestly say that he didn't deserve that position. He may very well have. I'm just being petty. Now, according to IMDB, which... I should add, is not the most reliable of sources. Hershorn served as a production assistant on the John Hughes film Sixteen Candles in 1984, and then as an associate producer for Bull Durham and an executive producer for Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. I really enjoy that last film quite a bit. And Hershorn would stay with movies for a while before moving over to the Fox network, as in the television network. He came on board before the network had actually launched and originally his role was to develop movie programming for the new television station. However, as the network got closer to launch, executives decided against having movie programming on the channel at all, and Hershorn would transition into a television executive role, something that was entirely new to him. Hershorn would recruit Keenan Ivory Waynes, who successfully pitched a sketch comedy show called In Living Color, which in turn would launch the careers of folks like Jim Carrey, Jamie Foxx, and Jennifer Lopez among others. Hershorn stayed with Fox for just three years, from 1986 to 1989. Uh, Bull Durham and Dirty Rotten Scoundrels would both come out in 1988, but his involvement in those had been in the early stages of the films, and he still did some independent production work. He then moved over to The Mouse House. He joined the Walt Disney Company as the senior vice president of production for a brand new movie studio under Disney called Hollywood Pictures, which would make films like The Santa Claus, among others. In 1996, Disney named Hershorn the president of Walt Disney TV, while he would also serve as executive vice president of Walt Disney Motion Pictures Group. He stayed on until 1999, when he either left or was, you know, told to leave, while Disney TV and ABC began to streamline operations and get rid of redundancies. It was in 2000, two years after Tech TV, then called ZDTV, had launched, that Hershorn began to put together his first ideas for what would become G4— He attended the trade show E3 for the first time. That's the big North American video games trade show. And according to later interviews, Hershorn originally thought about how video games have a lot of animation in them. And he had just spent a few years as president of Walt Disney Television, which produced several animated series. So maybe, he thought, you could do something with the animation in video games and turn it into a linear form of storytelling. His concept evolved into a channel that would be similar to something like MTV was back in the early 1980s, only instead of focusing on music and the rock and roll lifestyle, cue the song by Cake here, it would use video games as the central focus for the channel. So in other words, he wanted to engineer a channel geared toward a younger audience with a bit of a rebellious edge, you know, in a very corporate calculated way. Now, to be clear, there was a little bit of video game programming on television, but it was usually restricted to a segment on a longer show that was dedicated to technology in general. And there was an online audio and video network called Pseudo Entertainment that covered, among other things, video games and included video. But this was in the early 2000s, and most people lacked a good enough internet connection to view streaming video in anything approaching decent resolution quality. More often than not, you had a thumbnail-sized video running in a corner somewhere, and that's as good as you could watch. And if you tried to expand it beyond that your connection would just chug along and you'd be buffering the entire time. Sudo would go out of business not long after the dot-com bubble began to collapse in 2000. Also, the story behind Sudo is, like, super bonkers. So I'll have to do an episode about that at some point. Oh, and one other interesting connection. David Borman, a TV producer, stepped in to run Sudo toward the end. He would also go on to produce the Tech Live block of programming I talked about, for tech TV, and some of the folks from Pseudo would actually end up being part of G4. Anyway, there appeared to be at least some demand for more video game-related content, and no one was meeting it just yet. So Hershord goes on, and he, he founds a production company under Comcast, the cable provider, So this production company belonged to Comcast. It was called G4 Media. He hired on a consultant named Scott Rubin to help develop the concept of a video game channel. Rubin would go on to become the vice president of internet, IT, and program editorial and would also serve as a host on several shows. The G4 name was supposedly a reference to the four types of games that would be the focal point for the channel. Video games, computer games, online games, and wireless games. And that seems a little bit confusing to me, since in 2002, most games were pretty firmly either computer games or console games. Nearly all online games were a subset of computer games. There were very few console games that were online. And I'm guessing by wireless, they really meant like handheld systems like Game Boy and Game Boy Advance because cell phone games were almost not a thing. I mean, there was Snake but there wasn't much else in 2002. But hey, who am I to criticize this logic? Also, much later, Hershorn would reveal in an interview with Kevin Pereira that he had asked his wife to secure a URL for the new company before they had even figured out what the name was going to be. And he wanted video game to be in the name for the URL, but his wife wasn't able to find an available URL with video games in it. So he said, just grab something with the initial V or G or something. And she went down the list and said, G1's taken, G2's taken, G3's taken, G4's available. And he said, just take that. So- It's possible that G4 got its name because, literally, that was the available URL. In case you are curious, this was during what is generally called the sixth generation of video game systems, also known as the 128-bit era. This being, you know, the time when G4 would launch, that is. Consoles belonging to this generation included the original Xbox, the PlayStation 2, the Nintendo GameCube, and the Sega Dreamcast, though the Dreamcast was already starting to fade away by 2002. Uh, that was the last year anyone made games for the Dreamcast outside of Japan. Uh, Japan Dreamcast games would keep on going till about 2007. The executive crew for this company would include a lot of folks from the production side of entertainment. So Hershorn would serve as president and CEO. The chief operating officer, or COO, was Deborah Green, who had previously been a senior vice president over at E! Networks in the 1990s. The head of affiliate and advertising sales, a guy called Dale Hopkins, had also worked for E! Networks. The head of programming was Vince Longobardo, who had been with MTV for nearly 20 years before joining G4. The company also recognized that it might be a good idea to bring in some people who have insight into video games and video game culture. And so another founding leader of G4 Media was Tom Russo, who had previously been the editor of a gaming magazine called Next Generation. And of course, Scott Rubin was acting as a consultant as well. Comcast funded the development and the launch of this channel. They gave the company, essentially $150 million, and the plan was to give G4 three to five years in order to make enough money to pay off that initial investment. According to analysts, that would mean the channel would need to reach around 30 to 40 million households total. And the prime demographic, as I mentioned earlier, was 18 to 34-year-old men. Now, keep in mind, this was back in the early 2000s when video games were still considered a sort of niche hobby for nerds. There were a lot of negative stereotypes about gamers, mostly that they were a bunch of socially awkward losers. And I I use this as the stereotype. I don't think people who are socially awkward are losers at all, but this is the kind of thought process people were in back then. That video game players were socially awkward losers who, according to Most insults lived in their parents' basements and played video games, never stepped outside ever, didn't know how to talk to anybody else, that kind of thing. That was very much a a predominant stereotypical view of people who liked video games back in the early 2000s. And it's quite possible that some of the folks at G4 Media, you know, some of the people in charge, shared some of those perceptions about video game fans. There was next to no acknowledgement that women can also play and enjoy video games, too. They they were just not really considered part of the equation. Or that there are video game fans out there who are also active, productive, and successful members of society. And I think a lot of the guiding decisions for designing programming would be rooted in the same sort of toxic mindset that much of Gamergate was based in. And also, while I don't want to suggest that Gamergate was in any way a legitimate movement, I do think that G4's revenue practices would raise some eyebrows when it comes to journalistic integrity and unbiased reviews. I'll explain more about that in just a moment. Skeptics worried that the channel would be unable to muster a following. I mean, who the heck wants to watch someone else play video games? Now, I imagine if you were to take any of those skeptics from 2002, plop them into present day and turn on Twitch TV or YouTube, their brains would melt right out of their ears. Now we have an entire industry complete with superstars who go by handles like Ninja or Shroud, who have built brands on top of the concept of people watching them play video games. As for me, heck, I remember being a kid and watching really good players play arcade games. I didn't have any desire to jump in or challenge them. I just liked watching people who are really good at games kick some digital butt. So I'd like to think at least I would have felt that there was a market for this sort of thing if it were handled properly. The Los Angeles Times reported in January 2002 that Comcast was going to launch a video game-centric channel later that year. As far as I could tell, this was the earliest public acknowledgement of G4. Comcast said it would launch the channel to 7 million subscribers of the company's basic cable package. That wouldn't quite be the case at launch the hope was that comcast's support would give the fledgling channel enough of a head start to land some good advertising deals for its programming an article in sf gate that published one month after the channel actually went live which was in april 2002 had a slightly different set of figures according to the article g4 was initially available in about 3 million households with the goal of reaching 5 million by the end of 2002 Oh, and like Tech TV, it wasn't initially available in San Francisco, which, at least in the minds of the tech industry, is the center of the known universe. When the channel went live, it broadcast something pretty unusual for its first week a Pong Marathon. Yep, the, the classic video game, Pong. It was the 30th anniversary for Pong, and sometimes the footage included two players going head-to-head against each other. Sometimes it was a player versus a computer opponent. But it was just Pong. After the first week, we'd get a better idea of what G4 was going to be all about, at least at first. I'll explain more in a second, but first let's take a quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. After the Pong Marathon stunt, there were about a dozen programs that ran in heavy rotation. By that, I mean reruns or replays of a show. Some of the shows were done live, but then would be shown again and again throughout a 24-hour period. A lot of these were half-hour shows, so they didn't fill up a full day's worth of programming. So shows included stuff like Cheat, a show that revealed cheat codes and strategies for games. Uh, There was a show called Blister, which was a series that focused on action and adventure games. Uh, That show, by the way, was the first G4 program to air after the week-long Pong Marathon concluded. There was Sweat. It was similar to Blister, except it was a show that really focused on sports video games. Of course, there was a video game review show called Judgment Day that had originally started out as a segment on a show called The Electric Playground that had previously found airtime in Canada. Pulse was a news show about video games. Uh, There were shows that would do profiles on celebrities who liked to play video games. That one was called Players. There was another show that looked at people in the industry, people who were game designers or artists or musicians that worked on games. That one was called Game Makers. I actually really liked that show. There was an interactive talk show called G4TV.com. That one was my favorite show. It was hosted by Laura Foy, Tina Wood, and Scott Rubin as the original group. And they would look at news and rumors in the video game world. They would answer questions. People would write in and ask questions about video games that they would try to answer. And it was legit a great show. I remember watching it all the time back in those days. Cinematech was a bit of an odd program. It was a 30 minute block of programming that was really just video game play footage and video game cutscenes with no hosts or real, really any commentary. Uh, then they had a couple of game show like shows. There was one called Game On, where they would grab people to compete against each other in arcade games and stuff like that. And then there was a team based show called Arena. And Arena would originally feature actor Will Wheaton as one of the two hosts for the show, the other being Travis Oates. Wheaton was the only host in the G4 lineup that the mainstream media really recognized as being something of a celebrity. Everyone else who was attached to G4, at least as far as the mainstream coverage was concerned, was an unknown. several had been working in video games and video game journalism for years, and many of them would go on to have notable careers in production, the video game industry, in in entertainment, and more. For example, Judgment Day, the video game review show, would occasionally review gaming hardware. When they do that, they had a young woman who would showcase the hardware. She was sort of a show model showing off the stuff. That young woman happened to be Evangeline Lilly, who would go on to be a big star in the J.J. Abrams series Lost. One thing that G4 paid a lot of attention to early on was its online presence. The channel had a dedicated website, which hosted forums in which members could post about various topics. Show hosts and producers were known to pop into those forums on occasion and contribute to the conversation, building a strong sense of community. I was actually on those forums back in the day. This was stuff that I didn't remember while I was researching the show. I couldn't even remember that I used to be on the forums all the time. But I did. I popped on. I remember occasionally chatting with some of the hosts, which was kind of cool. Sometimes the hosts would even set up gaming sessions in which viewers could play in online games with some of their favorite on-air personalities. Some of the people in charge of moderating the forums had come from other online communities, such as the pseudo-entertainment forums. Now, according to an article in Variety, Hershorn had said that the channel had done, quote, better than expected, end quote, in getting advertisement support for the channel. And this is probably a good time to talk about the advertising strategy in those early days because some of the decisions that they made were fairly controversial and again would help feed into the general complaints about journalistic integrity and video game coverage further down the line. I would argue that G4's advertising strategy really sowed the seeds for the complaints that were at the heart of GamerGate, keeping in mind the rest of GamerGate quickly blossomed well outside of video game journalism ethics. So firstly, the better than expected comment might've been a bit disingenuous. Early on, the channel found it difficult to fill up all the ad slots with, you know, actual ads. To flesh it all out, the channel would include bumpers, station identification messages, often with celebrities who had no idea what they were identifying, and video game footage of players going for world records, that kind of thing. Hershorn's innovative solution was to offer the opportunity to video game developers and publishers to purchase airtime dedicated to their video game titles. Essentially, The deal was to run an ad as if it were actual content within a show. So there'd be a section of a show dedicated to really focusing on a specific title. And to a viewer of the show, it would seem like this was part of the show's programming as opposed to a paid-for advertisement. The video game would get a couple of minutes of dedicated coverage. Shows like Pulse, which was the news show and G4TV.com, would end up being the the hosting mechanisms for these segments, it wasn't always clear to the viewer that the stuff they were seeing was paid for content. Now, as a content creator myself, I've always felt that transparency is incredibly important as it shows you understand your audience and you aren't going to insult their intelligence because most of us are smart enough to recognize when someone is selling stuff to us. Now, to be fair to Hershorn and the G4 channel in general, landing deals with advertisers in 2002 was super hard for many reasons, some of which I touched on in the Tech TV episode that came out before this one. One of those reasons was that the economic impact of both the dot-com bubble bursting and then the terrorist attack in the United States on September 11th, 2001, meant that a lot of companies were cutting way back on advertising and marketing budgets. So there just wasn't much money to go around. Complicating matters is that there were a ton of cable channels out there. Some of them, like G4, were pretty niche in their focus, a very narrow focus on a a demographic. Others were a little bit more broad. And everyone was after that ad revenue because that was the main source of money for most of these cable channels, at least the ones that were not based on a subscription model. So let's say you are running an ad agency and you got a big client that wants you to run ads on television. So you're looking at your options. And it's a buyer's market because there are so many channels out there. They all have inventory. They all have these ad slot spaces they wanna fill up. So there's a lot of potential space out there. So do you go with a niche channel geared toward a very specific hobby and it's a channel that doesn't even reach that many households in the grand scheme of things? Or do you go with a channel that has a more broad appeal and reaches more homes? And it's probably for a pretty similar price because no one can ask for very high prices on their advertising at this point. Well, it will surprise no one that many ad agencies would take option number two. It just made more business sense, but it meant that G4 was really having to hustle to get ads on its channel, which in turn meant that the channel was hustling a lot to meet revenue goals. The company was trying to keep costs down, and the shows were fairly low budget to produce, but it was still a struggle. By 2003, a year into the channel's existence, G4 had made its way onto the basic cable package of 11 million households in the United States. That was a big improvement, and in fact it was a bit ahead of schedule, but still far shy of that 30 to 40 million households it would need to make it look attractive enough to many big advertisers to jump on board. So the channel was caught in kind of a catch-22. It wasn't going to land those ad deals without getting onto more basic cable packages. But because it was almost entirely dependent upon Comcast as a cable carrier, and because Comcast itself had a limited number of subscribers, it wasn't likely to reach that goal. But still, the channel just kept plugging along, and besides, the channel still had a few years to go before it had to break even on that $150 million that Comcast had floated at launch. And keep in mind, I'm talking about households that could potentially watch this channel. I'm not even talking about viewers here. I'm saying 40 million households that would have G4 as a viable option on their cable subscription. Not even whether or not they ever watched it. Well, all of this stuff was going on behind the scenes, but in front of the cameras, things were also getting very rocky. The channel sent hosts to cover the E3 event, which actually went pretty well. But toward the end of 2002, Travis Oates and Will Wheaton, the hosts of the show Arena, quit their jobs right in the middle of the season or toward the end of it. Wheaton posted an explanation from his point of view about what had happened that led up to his departure, and he included allegations that a producer on the show had seriously mishandled pretty much everything. A friend of mine who was a moderator for G4's online forums wrote a blog post that said there was more to the story than what Wheaton had shared, but it sounds to me like however you shake it out, the arena situation was particularly ugly. G4 replaced the original hosts with Lee Rehrman and Michael Loudon. Loudon would later get replaced by a guy named Kevin Pereira. Kevin Pereira had been an active member of the G4 forums, and then he landed a gig as a production assistant for G4TV.com, and gradually worked his way up so that he could be considered for this host role. So that's how Mr. Pereira got his start in front of the cameras. He would end up playing an increasingly important role over at G4 as a personality. In 2003, G4 held its first award show, which acknowledged video game developers for stuff like Best Online Game, which was Battlefield 1942, and it won that in 2003 in that first Award ceremony. They also had categories like Best Story, Kingdom Hearts won that one. Uh, I tried to understand what Kingdom Hearts' story was, but even the brilliant Brian David Gilbert couldn't get me up to speed on that one, and I tried. The show also had awards for some more tongue in cheek categories, such as Character You'd Most Like to Be. They ended up being Dante from Devil May Cry 2, or Hottest Character. Tina Armstrong in Dead or Alive Extreme Beach Volleyball. I think those categories were a clear indicator that the channel was really taking aim at that 18 to 34 male demographic. I also feel badly for anyone who loved video games, but who did not fall into this particular stereotype that the channel was catering to. Uh, I read a few posts written by women during this time who were watching programs like G4TV.com because they loved video games, but they were starting to feel purposefully ignored or alienated with just about everything else the G4 channel was doing. The channel canceled a few shows like Game On that just weren't doing very well, but ultimately the limiting factor for the channel was its reach Comcast was able to carry G4 to about 15 million households by 2004, but that's where things were capped. Comcast didn't, couldn't reach more households by itself, and there was no single flagship show on the channel that was generating enough buzz to convince other cable providers and satellite companies to include G4 in their lineups. So there didn't seem to be any way to organically grow the channel's reach. They would have to buy it. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is where we come up to what was pretty much the end of the previous episode, the acquisition of Tech TV. Now, the real purpose of that acquisition was to get G4 into more homes. Tech TV had about four times the reach of G4, and the two didn't overlap that much. G4's reach... And tech TV's reach were in different areas because Comcast had been dropping tech TV from its cable lineups in different markets. And G4 wasn't being carried on the various carriers that were providing tech TV. So the thought was this way they could buy that enormous amount of reach. And it would be a shortcut to get enough households to potentially attract bigger advertisers. They would no longer be limited. They would get that 30 to 40 million households they needed to have as a bargaining chip. The messaging around the acquisition was that the two channels were going to join forces. And there would be programs from both channels featured on the new Unified channel. But that's not what was really happening in the background. In reality, pretty much everyone at Tech TV was fired. And they were told that they might be able to land a job with the new channel, but that it wasn't a guarantee. Tech TV's base of operations was located in San Francisco, but G4 was down in Los Angeles. So it would mean that a lot of people would have to relocate for a job they weren't sure they would actually have for very long. Ultimately, just three shows from Tech TV would join the G4 lineup. They were the screensavers, without host Leo Laporte, who couldn't come to an agreement with the new channel, X-Play, a video game review show that had the best fit with the rest of G4's lineup, and an anime show called Anime Unleashed. All the other shows on tech TV in the United States got the axe. G4 relaunched on May 28, 2004, as G4 Tech TV. And while Tech TV had been gutted in the process, G4 also canceled several of its original programs as well over the following year, including shows like Players, Pulse, Blister, Arena, Portal, and eventually Judgment Day, since the executives figured there'd be no reason to run two video game review shows on the same channel. And they also canceled reruns of an old game show called Starcade that had been playing on G4. The screensavers, which initially did survive the transfer over to G4, would also change dramatically. While it was originally a show dedicated to technology in general and computers in particular, it had segments about hardware, ways to fix computer problems. They took live calls from users to help them with whatever issues they were having. It would slowly drift more toward a pop-culture-oriented show, so while it existed in name, the show itself changed enough to no longer really be the screensavers. At the top levels of leadership, there was also a change of Bruin. Early in 2005, it became clear that there was a push to move G4 away from being quite so video game-centric as it had been at launch. One show that the channel picked up in early 2005 was Formula D, a television show dedicated to drift racing. I remember when that came out, and I thought, what? And the effort to cater to a male audience became even more apparent with the launch of a show called Girls Gone Wired, which was about, well, I think you can guess. But yeah, if you really wanted to ogle video game characters, I guess that was the show for you. The channel also began to invest more in syndicated runs of shows that also aimed at the 18-34 to 34 male audience. For example, in late 2005, G4 would pay $7.8 million to license the reruns of The Man Show from Comedy Central. It's a comedy show created by Jimmy Kimmel and Adam Carolla that reveled in all things stereotypically identified as being manly. Mostly ogling women. By February 15th, 2005, the pretense that G4 and Tech TV were a partnership was completely dropped and the channel became just G4. Not that this came as a surprise to anyone. What might have come as a surprise to Hershorn was that by September of 2005, he would be on the outs. There's not a lot uh, that was actually written about his departure at that time, apart from the fact that Comcast quote-unquote dismissed him. But whatever the circumstances were, he was replaced by a former DirecTV executive named Neil Tiles. Tiles would push even harder to move G4 away from its focus on video games, with the goal of turning it more into a lifestyle channel aimed at men. Not too different from what Spike TV was doing. Spike TV, by the way, had started off as the Nashville Network, which was all about country music and and that lifestyle then got rebranded into the National Network in 2000, and then became Spike TV in 2003. Uh, In 2018, that channel also got rebranded, and today that channel is called the Paramount Network. So it's changed again. G4 canceled G4TV.com, which was a big blow to me. As I had loved the show, I felt the hosts were genuine, entertaining, and informative. Kevin Pereira had moved over as a host of The Screensavers, but that show was heading for a total rebranding. In fact, you might even argue that The Screensavers was effectively totally scrapped and a brand new show came into its place. This new show, which would become a flagship program on G4, was Attack of the Show. Pereira would stay on, but the other hosts of The Screensavers all left to pursue other opportunities. One thing Attack of the Show did was launch a huge search for a new co-host. The original goal was to hire a new male co-host for the show. And at that time, I was working in a consulting firm in Atlanta and wasn't terribly happy. I had a background in theater, done some radio work, but that was about it. Despite the overwhelming odds, I chose to travel to one of the three cities where they held initial auditions. I remember San Francisco was one, another was Los Angeles, and I believe the third was New York. And boy, wouldn't this be a cool story if I had landed that gig? I didn't. In fact, nobody did. Attack of the Show would have a few finalists of that audition process that would host a segment or two on the show as sort of a trial, but ultimately G4 didn't hire any of them. Instead, a bit later, they they hired a, another host, who they quickly replaced with the actress Olivia Munn, who would go on to become one of the biggest stars to really first make her name at G4. Oh, and, and this is no shade on Ms. Munn, who I readily admit was a much better choice for what they wanted than than I would have been a, a dumpy bald dude from Georgia. Olivia Munn was hands down the best choice. G4 made the right call on that one. By 2006, the only original G4 show still on the air was Cinematech. Everything else by that point had been canceled. Every original G4 show was no longer on the network. And Cinematech, Pretty much featured gameplay and cutscenes from games, so you can't get much more low budget than that when it comes to production costs. I mean, I imagine there were probably some licensing fees that had to be paid, but that's about it. Cinematech, however, would finally get canceled in 2007, and then none of the original G4 shows would be still with the network. In 2007, the channel didn't look anything like its original incarnation. Pereira and Munn continued to host Attack of the Show, and Pereira was really the only link back to the old crew, and even then, you have to remember that he had started on-camera as a co-host on Arena. G4 continued to strike deals to run reruns of other shows on the channel, and this is when G4 kind of turned into the Cops and Ninja Warrior channel. Which, gotta be honest, I love Ninja Warrior. Heck, I still love American Ninja Warrior. Those men and women are incredible, but G4 also began showing reruns of the series Cheaters, and the audience that had been there for the launch of the channel was pretty much completely alienated. Don't even think about how the tech TV audience felt. They they had seen their programming get obliterated in the process. The only show that remained from the tech TV days that had not really been tampered with that much was X-Play. And even that one got a little wackier over time. The little bit of lip service G4 paid to video games at that point was disastrous. Like, they they couldn't do that right. The channel sent crews to E3 to cover press conferences, but because G4 had to run commercials and because these were live events, those two things didn't go together that great. Ads would interrupt highly anticipated presentations, such as the reveal of Mass Effect or the Halo 3 trailer. And the message was clear. Video games just weren't important to G4 anymore. The channel did try to create a few animated series like Happy Tree Friends and Code Monkeys, which featured the fantastic song by Jonathan Colton as the theme. These didn't get enough of a following to last more than a season or two. And rather than risk launching more failures, G4 continued to pour money into licensing deals so that the channel could run reruns of other shows like Heroes and Lost. Those licensing fees cost a lot of money, but the thinking was, these shows have already a proven track record. But here was the problem people had already seen those shows because, you know, they had already aired on broadcast television. You didn't even need a cable subscription to watch them. The two shows that were really doing well were Attack of the Show and X-Play. So you could argue that the programs that actually were performing well on the channel were the ones that catered to its original intended audience, although that's a stretch for a tech of the show, since it really didn't resemble the screensavers at all at that point. Also, both of those shows came out of, or grew out of, the tech TV programming, not the G4 programming. Things were not going great. The best-performing shows at their peak were bringing in 130,000 viewers around this time. And that's nothing in TV land. Cable carriers began to drop G4 from their lineups in order to replace it with something that might attract more viewers. In November 2010, DirecTV dumped G4. This was an enormous setback, and it pretty much erased the effect G4 had of acquiring tech TV back in 2004. Remember, the real reason for that acquisition was to get the channel on more cable and satellite carriers. Olivia Munn announced she was leaving G4 and Attack of the Show in 2010. She had landed a role on an NBC show called Perfect Couples. Uh, that would launch in early 2011, and that show would end up getting canceled a few months later. But Munn dedicated her attention and time to pursuing her acting career. She landed gigs in films and TV series. Her departure was a big blow to G4, as her on-screen chemistry with Pereira was one of the big reasons Attack of the Show was doing so well. Actress Candace Bailey would step in to become the new co-host of the show. While things were super rocky... They wouldn't end just yet. The channel was able to hold on for a couple more years. Back in 2009, Comcast announced its intent to merge with NBC Universal, which was a process that was completed in 2011. In early 2012, Neil Tynes would step down as president of the channel, and Adam Stotsky, who had previously been the president of NBC's entertainment division, would take on the leadership role. But one thing Stotsky did not have, notably, was experience in actual television programming. He did have experience with branding, however, and Stotsky worked to try and land a deal in which G4 would undergo an entire transformation. It would undergo a full rebranding into the Esquire network. But that deal ultimately fell through, and instead the Style Network would get that rebranding instead. Turns out it wouldn't have mattered. The Esquire Network ceased to be in 2017 anyway. In 2012, x play host Adam Sessler began hearing rumors that his days were numbered as a host on the channel. In April of that year, he was officially fired for reasons I've never been able to determine, apart from perhaps the channel just wanted to cut costs, and Sessler, as a longtime veteran, might have had a pretty high salary, comparatively speaking. He would end up with Revision 3 for a while, so for a short time, we were technically co-workers. The following month, Kevin Pereira announced he was leaving G4 and Attack of the Show after the E3 trade show in June of that year. His departure was pretty much the death blow to Attack of the Show, though it would limp along for the rest of 2012, shooting the final episode in December 2012 that would not air until January 2013, so technically most people say the show lasted until 2013. X-Play also aired its final show at that same time. G4 would continue to run reruns, but slowly those licensing deals were expiring. By November 2014, there just wasn't enough there, there. And NBC announced that the channel would go off the air. It was done. The Canadian version of G4, which I haven't really talked about here, and which would carry much more of the old tech TV programming for much longer, would last until 2017. So it outlived the American version of G4 and the American version of tech TV. In fact, it outlived the Esquire Network, the channel that, te- that G4 was supposed to turn into. Now, there's a lot more that could be said about this story. And like I've indicated a few times, the big story here is not unique to G4. There were a lot of channels that started out catering to a specific core audience. But the demands of the industry typically say it's not good enough for you to do well. It's not good enough for you to get good ratings. You need to grow year over year. Those ratings need to get better each year. And eventually, to grow, you have to expand beyond your core audience. You can't just keep appealing to the same people to watch more stuff. Now, I personally think growth on its own, is not the best measure for success, and it can lead to catastrophic failures and bad decisions like it did with G4. But what the heck do I know? I'm just a tech podcaster. But it was interesting going back and looking at the history of these two channels. They had a huge influence on me. In fact, I think I can honestly say that without tech TV, without G4, and also without the influence of CNET's Buzz Out Loud podcast, there never would have been a tech stuff. Uh, I never would have even thought to do a technology podcast without those predecessors. And while I cannot attest to being nearly as informative or entertaining as those shows could be and those channels could be, uh, I do my humble best. So G4 TV, you know, it came and it went. And it's, I thought it was just gone forever. And then in late July 2020, the G4TV Twitter account, which people were shocked to find out was still, uh, you know, accessible, tweeted out a teaser that showed a game of Pong playing and the message saying we never stopped playing and giving the year of 2021, thus indicating that G4TV is returning in 2021, the channel that we all thought was gone forever. A little bit later, Blair Herder, who has a long history with G4 TV, suggested an Ask Me Anything or AMA on Reddit and began to answer some questions. Uh, clearly couldn't answer everything, but gave us a little bit more information about what this return actually is going to look like. Part of it looks like it's going to be a web series. It also looks like they're going to attempt to get hold of episodes of past G4 TV programming, stuff that hasn't been seen in years. Mr. Herder said um, about that, uh, quote, While I technically have access to G4's archive of old shows, they're locked in a musty Burbank tape vault in a secret company basement that we literally can't access right now because of COVID. No joke, but stay tuned. I'll be pulling out the old VHS machine as soon as the pandemic lets me. In the meantime, please let us know what shows you'd like to see, end quote. So it looks like there's at least the possibility for older programming to be seen yet again. And then what about new programming? Well, the general consensus is that Attack of the Show and X-Play will both return in some form, though no telling who will be hosting it. Uh, There's no real indication of which hosts might be returning. In fact, a lot of them expressed utter surprise and shock when G4 TV's Twitter account even posted that was coming back. The whole endeavor is part of Comcast and NBC Universal, so it's got a big company behind it, but we just don't really know too much about what's going to manifest from this. One thing that I can say is that G4TV has opened up casting for whatever programming they have in mind. Even though we don't know very much about it, we do know they're looking for talent. And uh, in fact, there is a, a, a an email address you can send information to casting at g4tv dot com. And uh, I would recommend looking into that if you're interested. But I would also recommend you know looking over any. Agreements, if you actually do get into the whole process, because these sort of jobs require an awful lot of focus, a lot of energy, a lot of time, a lot of effort. it is It is not easy work to create content. It's great work. It's not easy. So you want to make sure that any agreement is uh, fair to both you and to the employer. And that means, you know, don't just if you get an offer for those out there who are going to try and, and apply, if you get an offer, look it over, make sure it's fair. And I'm not saying that it wouldn't be. I just don't know. And I know that there are a lot of horror stories about people who got into agreements because they really wanted to do this thing. They always wanted to create content and then uh, turned into something that was a lot harder and a lot bigger of a demand and not as much return as what they needed in order to make a living. So just be careful is all I'm saying. But I am excited to see G4 TV come back in whatever format it will reemerge in. I, I have a lot of fond memories of watching G4 TV. I mean, I did audition for them once upon a time. So, you know, I want to see them succeed and I want to see all the people uh, attached to it Uh, succeed as well so I have high hopes I have no idea what to expect but I thought it would be good to rerun this episode remind everyone what G4 TV was all about and to start looking forward to see what will come next if you guys have suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff whether it's a technology a company a trend in tech whatever it may be let me know reach out on Twitter the handle is Tech Stuff HSW and I'll talk to you again really soon tech stuff is an iheart radio production for more podcasts from iheart radio visit the iheart radio app apple podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows running a business is no cakewalk but with sap concur solutions you can be ready for anything That's C O N C U R dot com.
1: I'm Katia Adler, host of the Global Story. Over the last twenty-five years I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. with Zumo Play.